beginning verse 19 through the end of the chapter. I'll bring out reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in, cool, in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from here, from there, pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to continue with Christ's teaching with regard to uh, the relationship between the Christian uh, and our fiscal situation here on earth. How does this world's money how does this world's things interact with our relationship with God and with eternity? We have been given specific warning to the disciples of Jesus Christ, the believers. Be careful that we do not strive in our lives to serve two masters. That we have God and God alone fulfill that role within our life of Lord, of Master. We have further been instructed by that same parable that we are to be faithful stewards and wise, not in the world's eyes wise, but from God's perspective. That we understand the temporality of all that exists here and that we invest that into our future, knowing that there is a divine audit that we must face and there is an existence beyond that audit that we should prepare for. We are then given further warning by example of the Pharisees. Of the abomination of loving money and denying it. Or seeking to justify it through spiritual means. And certainly the Pharisees were very adept at this had really not only convinced themselves, but all their society of this. And yet, 
in the doing of it were in fact in violation of the very law they proposed that they were experts at not only teaching, but of keeping. And Christ gives example of their violation of the law. We now come into an account. And I say that um, because there is some question whether we are dealing with a parable. Most of your Bibles will likely not necessarily identify this as a parable. There's a reason that we do that. It is certainly uh, sounds like a parable in many respects, but there are some differences here. Uh, for one thing, we have no representation of God in this parable. And it seems that though most of the parables all have some uh, representation of that entity, but not all of them. Uh, perhaps the most glaring difference here is that we have a name. We have someone, an individual named. And this is the only time, and I mean the only time, in all of this style of teaching of Jesus that he names someone. Most all the other times, they are a man, a rich man, a poor man, a woman, um, a, a man, his son. We have all these characters that are introduced but never named. And for that reason, many uh, teachers would uh, describe this as an account of Christ sharing a testimony of someone that he is familiar with or well-known. We're not going to really solve that or really debate that today at all, whether it is a parable or an account. um, The information doesn't change. It does affect one area of doctrine, though. And that is, is Jesus giving us true information about the afterlife, or is he giving us a fictional information about the afterlife? And I would contend that either way, whether it's parabolic or an account, Christ will not give misinformation about the afterlife at all. He would not do that, and so we can trust what is taught here just as much as we can trust what is taught in the parabolic teaching that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth at the other end for those that reject God's mercy and grace. And so we come to this teaching, accepting it as true, realizing that it has a message, and that message um, is to reinforce something he's just said. And that is, is that true adherence to the Old Testament will always lead us to having God as our master and not money. True adherence to the law, to Moses and the prophets, will bring us into a faith relationship with God that places Him in the center and the fullness of our being and not anything of this world. It is summarized really by the last verse of the chapter that you can see the immediate connection to verse 16 that we, or verse 17, sorry, that we studied last, well, 16 and 17, studied last week. And that is that if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, is there any hope for you at all? Very powerful statement. That if you're not willing to believe what was taught there, can anything really reach you? Can anything really penetrate your heart if you have manipulated this much Scripture to make room in your heart for a different God, another master? Can anything really reach you? And that really is the force 
of this story that Christ shares. And obviously it brings to bear not only the law, but it brings to bear how we view those of this world in their financial condition. Let's begin by looking at the account, verse 19. Well, no, let's continue by praying first, then we'll get into our account. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity again to look into your word. And again, we find ourselves entirely dependent upon your spirit. To guide this time, the words spoken, the manner in which they are heard, received. Lord, our prayers that your spirit might overshadow this time. Guard it from error, certainly but also to reinforce the power of your word in our lives. Praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. There was a certain rich man. We see his life as living richly. Adjacent to him is a certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus is in a very bad condition. He is not only hungry, but he is full of sores. And in fact, it says in a, in a passive tense verb that he was laid at his gate. It wasn't that he got up and walked there. He was placed there. The indication is this man was in very serious condition health-wise. His life was in jeopardy. In many respects, this is very comparable to the description of the man who was attacked and the Samaritan comes across him on the road and sees the need for some immediate attention to this person. Lazarus is laid at the gate. We don't know who laid him there. We don't know any of that, but he was laid there. His body is riddled with sores. He is hungry. He is a beggar. Uh, We may look at this and say, well, you know, that in and of itself is wrong. But the law carefully describes this as the role of those who cannot work because of physical ailment. That they are to go out and beg. And part of the worship for a godly man, part of the worship of God in the temple was the giving of alms. We've really lost track of that part of Jewish worship. We usually focus in on the tithes and the offerings, the sacrifices that are given in the temple um, in and around there. But the law also describes the necessity of giving alms, that as you go in and, and exit, that you are to be responsive to those who have true need. These are not people who are unwilling to work, but unable to work. These are the lame, the blind such individuals like that, their responsibility in that society was to go out there and beg. That was what was required of them. And in response, the people who are going there to worship would provide for them. And so this was not something that they landed on because they didn't want to work. It wasn't something that was looked down upon in society. It was anticipated that they would be there, that they were fulfilling a purpose, and that we... By ministering to them, we are worshiping God. Great 
presentation in society of dealing with the poor, of not trying to ignore them, but nor trying to um, take away their responsibility. And so we often would think of a beggar as someone who has no self-respect, and yet we find in the manner in which God has established that in that society, it maintained their self-respect. For this is my job, is to get out there and to perform this function, uh, and by so doing, enabling others of wealth to serve God, worship God. And so we find him late at the gate as a beggar. Those two things alone call attention to him. But his physical condition has waxed very poorly. The sores are infected. Uh, the idea of dogs licking at them uh, puts the image in our mind of just how odious this situation is. He wants, it says in verse 21, it doesn't say he gets, he wants to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. These are the leftovers. These are the unwanted portions. It doesn't say that he acquired what he desired, but only that he desired them. He wasn't asking for a seat at the table. He wasn't seeking out um, a solution to his poverty, really. He was just seeking out the care for his immediate needs from the portions that you were going to throw out anyway. He was essentially dumpster diving if you will. He's only there looking for not um, your best. He's not looking to... T- he's looking for your trash. He's looking for your leftovers. He wants the crumbs that drop from the table that you're unwilling to eat. That's what he's after. That's really the extent of his desires at this point. Well, in that condition... And apparently from the lack of that desire being met, perhaps due to his sores and the infected state that they were in, it says the beggar died. So we have this situation. We have man in wealth, living in luxury, faring sumptuously, and we all know what that kind of life is because that's the life that we live. We live that life. We throw out more than most of the world lives on. When we begin to understand that, we fit ourselves into this story. We are living sumptuously. If you don't believe that, go to our school cafeteria. I invite you to go to a public school cafeteria for one meal. Go there right after visiting a place like a Haitian orphanage. And go there for one meal. And tell me you don't get disgusted. You see, what we throw out is more than they, in one meal, is more than they will eat in a day. It's more than they eat in a day. What we throw out at one meal. So when we read this account, we often want to associate ourselves with Lazarus. And traditionally, perhaps in the church, that's what we've done. And, and, and again, historically, Christianity has made stronger inroads among the poor, the slaves, than among the wealthy. But we sit here in that condition. 
You're dressed in fine linen and we eat sumptuously every day. And here is one who is looking for not to take food out of your mouth, but off your floor, out of your trash. The contrast is very clear. It is We have no information about their spiritual state of either one of these until death happens. Fascinating thing happens. Death comes. In our Sunday school class, we were studying Ecclesiastes, and as you read through Ecclesiastes, one of the things that you'll find Solomon uh, meditating on occasionally is the fact that whether you are rich or poor, something happens to you the same. That's something that's called death. You die. The rich don't die any less painfully than the poor. The rich do not die any uh, less often than the poor. Both die. In our text here, beggar dies, carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. We'll talk about what that is here very shortly. The rich man died and was buried. We don't have any angels carrying him away. He has died and buried. Now we begin to find out what were these two like spiritually? What had they provided for spiritually? We find immediately that God is interested and concerned about Lazarus and brings him into this place called paradise or Abraham's bosom, this place of comfort, this place of waiting. But waiting in a place of love. Waiting for something to occur. We then have the rich man sent to this place. Gehenna is the term there. Um, which is a place of burning, constant burning. It's a garbage heap, a burning garbage dump. And the Gehenna is the word here. And so he is in a place of torment, of constant fire. Not a pleasant fire, like a fired side thing, but a disgusting, torturous, noxious fire. Gehenna. And we would believe that to really be in paradise would be to be in a place that we are totally ignorant that Gehenna exists. And we find quite the contrary. Not only are we aware of its existence, but we find some communication happening between the two. Because you see, the torment of the lost, while it rubs against our modern sensitivities, does not bring... Uh, shame to God or His people. In fact, it brings glory to Him. It brings glory to His holiness and righteousness that He is just and pure, which requires Him to judge evil. The judgment of evil is not something to turn our faces away from. It is something to applaud. For this is right. So we find that there is contact between Father Abraham and this man. Interesting that Lazarus never raises his voice in this passage. We don't have one word from Lazarus anywhere through it. The contacts between Abraham 
and the rich man. The rich man has a simple request that sounds amazingly like Lazarus's request. I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not asking for a full meal. I'm not asking for your best. I'm asking for a drop. Just as Lazarus' only desire was for a crumb, and the indication is he didn't get it. The evidence is this guy was so uncaring, unfeeling about a, a poor beggar who was on his last on his deathbed, essentially, that he didn't care to make sure he had at least a, a, something to eat before he passed. He was that caught up in himself. And so the rich man asked for a similar request. All I want is for one drop. What would come off of a finger? Dropped, pulled out of water, a drop or two on my tongue. All I'm asking for is a crumb. Just a slight relief from this torment. Just as all Lazarus wanted was a slight relief from some of his suffering that he had in this world, this is all the rich man was asking for the exact same thing. A slight temporary relief from my suffering. He begs it of it. Ask for mercy. Ask for a very brief respite from the torment he was enduring. Abraham's response, of course, you know. But I want you to look at how he references him. This is a son of Abraham. This is one of his family, physically. This is the son of Abraham. This is a Jewish person. So he calls him son. You are one of my sons. Not of faith, but of, but of physicality. You are one of my people. You are an Israelite. Calls him son. Remember, in your lifetime you received your good things. Likewise, uh, Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Um, you had your opportunity. You enjoyed it. You didn't think about what happens after death. You simply enjoyed today for today. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's today. We'll live for the moment. Who knows what's in the future? Who knows if there is a future? Oh, what foolish and dangerous thinking that is. And yet it pervades men today. And it pervades our society particularly. I find godless Hindus more concerned about how they're going to come back after, and therefore how they live this life, how they're going to come back in the next, than I find we who are of a Christian culture and nation, quote-unquote Christian. We who have the truth about the future seem to think the least about the future. So he lived for the day, and he enjoyed the day. But the day was passing, and had passed, ever so briefly. And now he's confronted with eternity. And Abraham says, what you chose in your lifetime, 
has made a determination upon your eternity. You see, the stewardship is not permanent. It's temporary. Our bounty today is not for long. And like the parable of the unjust steward, the account of the rich man Lazarus points us to the idea that we must think of today as an opportunity to prepare for that day, for eternity that if we enter into eternity unprepared, we are really prepared for torment. If we just put it off and say it doesn't exist, that this is all there is, that this is going to go on forever, that I am immortal, that things are immortal, you're preparing for an eternity of torment. Abraham adds one other reason why this request cannot be fulfilled. Not only is it because you have chosen your destiny, but secondly, even if we could overcome that, we can't overcome the great gulf between us. Verse 26 says, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. Those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Oh, that so many of our cults would figure out that this verse exists. Once you have gone into that world, there are no more chances. The gulf he is speaking of here is described physically, but it really represents um, a gulf on many levels. That there is a permanence of eternity. That there is no crossing from one to the other. Um, There is no activity that you can do today for a relative that has passed that will ease their eternity. There is nothing you can do. You cannot pray them out. You cannot give them out. You cannot do any of it. You cannot baptize them out. There is no activity that you can do for someone who has already gone into their eternity. Nor is there any activity they will be able to do in eternity. What if I just communicate to you out of one simple verse? Clearly, today is the day of salvation. This is the time to prepare for your future. It is not after the day of reckoning. If the unjust steward had waited till after the audit, it would have been too late. He would have had no contacts, no friends. He would have had nothing set up for himself. And yet we find many people are sure that after the audit with God about their life, that they will be given another opportunity to bridge this great divide, this great chasm. And it will not happen. This is the opportunity we have. This is it. I hear some in our culture act as though through wishful thinking, wishful praying, wishful activity that we can change the eternity that someone has chosen for their life. And God offers no such foolishness. The statement is clear. 
Once you enter into that eternity, that condition, a great gulf is fixed. There's a great separation, and it is a fixed separation that none can pass, not from one to the other. Lazarus could not go to him. He could not go to Lazarus. It is a fixed condition. Once this rich man begins to realize that this is forever, this isn't just something that is just going to be for a little bit till he scourge, purge you, scourge, purge you of your sin so that you can be then brought in. This is a permanent condition. This is a fixed state of being for you. Once he begins to weigh that out and begin to understand that, and oh, the people would weigh that out today and think about it. As we talked about this morning again in Sunday school, one of the great tragedies of our society is people don't think about reality. They don't think about what is really going to happen. They don't meditate on it. We are entertained to death to the point of distraction that we don't think important thoughts. Well, they lead us to despair. At least despair admits the truth. Or whether they, in that despair, realize that there's a message of hope and there's only one place, and that's Jesus Christ. So, what is the effect upon the rich man? Finally, thinking about eternity. Thinking about the fact that once it is passed into, your place is fixed Well, he knows there's no hope for him. And he stops asking. His request is no longer about him. His focus is no longer about him. He recognizes that that he has chosen his place and it is his to endure. The gulf is fixed. It is uncrossable. Finally, finally, his thoughts turn to others. Had no thought for others in this life. Hadn't really been thinking about others yet, even in eternity. Not until he's confronted with this simple truth. Once you pass into eternity, your place is fixed. That truth, that one truth, moves him from thinking about himself now to others. Now he's going to think about those who still have a choice. Who still have an opportunity. Who still have a chance. And so he says, okay, we can't do anything about me. Can't even relieve me from this torment even for the briefest of moments. I understand that. This is justice. This is where I belong. This is how it's going to be. So I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. If Lazarus can't come to me, can you send him back there? Send him back to earth. Send him back. If you can't cross this gulf, go to that one. Cross that gulf. Now I want you to see something that we overlook here a little bit. I want you to see that the gulf between torment and paradise is more fixed than the gulf between life and death. 
Lazarus could have gone back to earth. Couldn't pass into Gehenna. Think about that a little bit. He could have. Abraham doesn't say, that's not impossible. We can't send anyone back. Um, you know, Lazarus is here and, and death is permanent and it's all over with. doesn't say that. Abraham nowhere says that. Abraham's statement is, they've got the Word of God. Let them listen to it. He says, no, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they all repent. He says, if they don't listen to them, neither will they listen to Nat Lazarus if he comes back from the dead. Implication? Lazarus could come back from the dead. He Let it sink on you a little bit. What we have been missing in this story is that eternal death is more permanent than physical death. Physical death can be undone. Has been undone. <laughs> on more than one occasion. Going all the way back in the Old Testament... Physical death can be undone. The prophets were able to do it on occasion. Lazarus, friend of Christ, is going to be brought back to life right out of the grave after three days. Christ himself is going to conquer death. The death, physical death, is less permanent than eternal death. Is easier... <laughs> to resurrect a dead body than it is to cross from torment into paradise on the other side of your divine accounting. Your divine audit's coming. And if you are not prepared for it and you enter Gehenna death, no one can reach you there. No one can reach you there. It is to be more feared than physical death in this life. Because that can be overcome and has been by Christ's resurrection. We hold for the believer the power of the resurrection. And therefore, physical death isn't our primary concern. It can be undone and will be undone. In fact, not only will it be undone for us who believe, let me get this, let me let me share with this. Physical death will be undone for everybody. The Bible says that the righteous will rise and that there will also be a resurrection of the unjust. Think about that a little bit. Death isn't permanent for anyone in this flesh. All will be resurrected. What is permanent <laughs> is what you've chosen. You see, the unjust will be resurrected not to life, but to eternal death. They'll be resurrected to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And that's permanent. Abraham's statement here is a powerful one. And the understanding of the rich man is a powerful one. Understanding that the most permanent thing that can happen is that you're in a place of torment or in your place of comfort in eternity more permanent than your physical death is your eternal state. Now, let the weight of that come on our shoulders. How important is it for us to make a choice for Christ today while it is still called today? 
How important is it for the lost to hear the message of Jesus Christ? It is more, it is more than a matter of life and death. It is more than a matter of life and death. The people hear the gospel. We think that, oh, we need to run in and this is a matter of life and death and that makes it a priority issue. If we walk into a hospital, this makes it the highest code. I don't know what color that is, but they do it. And this is a priority because it's a life and death issue. It's the highest priority. And it's not. There's something of a higher priority than life and death because death can be undone. The highest priority issue today is your eternity. That's the highest priority issue. Are you going to be in a place of torment or a place of comfort forever and ever and ever, permanently and fixedly? This is the number one priority. And the man recognizes it. says, oh, please, I have five brothers. Let Lazarus go back to life on earth and and resurrect his body and send him back there that he may be able to testify. And certainly my brothers, and the indication here is the brothers knew Lazarus. They had been going in and out that same gate. They had ignored that same man. They had been uncaring for him just as this man. Let Lazarus, whom they all know died and was buried... Because he's not at the gate anymore. They may walk by. Hey, where's that beggar that used to be here? Oh, he died. Oh, too bad. If he were a better man, he would have been wealthy like us. But he must have deserved it. Let my five brothers be testified to by Lazarus. They knew him. And if he goes back and tells them, they'll believe it. We're sure that that's the case. That is not the case. And we know that. We know that very clearly from Scripture. Uh, we know that very clearly from reality. Christ is going to raise a guy named Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11. Let's turn there very quickly. John chapter 11. Again, I'm not probably not telling you anything new or different. But I'm going to bring it to your attention John chapter 11. I'm sorry. In chapter 12. I couldn't figure out why that wasn't right. John chapter 11. Lazarus, a guy named Lazarus, a friend of Christ, dies. Find out right away in verse 1. Christ has some interactions. He has a lesson to teach them. We want to pick up in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb four days. I think I said three, four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Martha sees Jesus coming, goes out to meet him. Mary's sitting in the house. And the statement is, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I know. Isn't that great? I love that she knew that. She already knew that there was going to be a resurrection. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now, we're going to stop right there. On what basis did she believe all this? Lazarus was still dead in the grave. He was in the tomb. Her statement of belief was not based upon what was about to happen. Her statement of belief was on who said he was the resurrection of life. It was on the person of Jesus Christ, not on the event of the resurrection of Lazarus. Great testimony. Here's a gal who believed. Why? Because Jesus said it. I believe it. God says it. I believe it. Done. Christ has this activity, though. Verse 28. She went her way. Tells her sister. Teachers come, calling for you. Heard that. She runs out to him. He's not quite there yet. So she runs to meet him. Um, verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and covering her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. We're going to go cry with her. Because <laughs> they're professional criers. That's their job. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, same declaration. Therefore, when she saw it, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Where have you laid him? Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then Jesus said, see how he loved him. Or the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Still the question. Can you? You could stop death. But once death occurs, it's over. They thought death was final. Like most of us think and act like. The only thing final is your eternal state once you reach it. Jesus groans in himself, verse 38. Take away the stone. Oh, he stinks. Praise. Verse 44, he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Verse 45 is where we want to really press ourselves. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Some will believe. I want you to notice something. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man who works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Guess what? They didn't believe. It wasn't enough to convince them. The wealthiest of the, of the people in that day were these individuals. You're still there in chapter 11. Let's go to chapter 12. Verse 10. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Yes, some believed. But look who didn't. They were wanting to kill not only Jesus but Lazarus as well. We have the triumphal entry of Christ. Look at verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Then he quotes Isaiah. Even when Jesus Christ himself is raised from the dead, did they believe in him? Some. 
But that alone isn't sufficient. And the fact is the individuals that we are talking about here had access to the Law and the Prophets. They were children of Abraham. They were wealthy. And every indication is they had full access to the Law and the Prophets. But it wasn't changing their lives. The rich man and his brothers were Pharisees. How do you know that? Because the expectation was they knew the truth and didn't believe it. If they don't believe the truth of God's word, knowing it, they weren't ignorant of it. Abraham says they know it. They have it. That's not that they have it around, laying around somewhere they can access it. They have knowledge of Moses and the prophets. They're not, if that's not enough to get them to believe, even one raising from the dead won't do it. And that's exactly what happens. The Pharisees weren't convinced when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They weren't convinced when Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't convinced. And we're sure that, well, if we could just do some great stuff, then we could get people to believe in Jesus. You have the greatest stuff there is to confront people with the gospel. You have the truth. You have God's word. It is the vehicle for belief. To bring people to Christ, you have the most powerful instrument on the planet, God's word. The second instrument is the Holy Spirit. I know he's more powerful than the scriptures, but he's not at your disposal necessarily. He will convict. He's doing his work as he has promised. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment on his own. But what we have is the Holy Spirit empowering us to use this tool. And we're sure that it's not enough. We need to go to other marketers to figure out how to market Christianity people. We just need a better marketing plan. If we had a better marketing plan, we could reach a lot more people for Christ. Really? Sounds a lot like if someone would come back from the dead, people would start believing again. You see, we sound like the rich man, don't we? We're convinced that God's word isn't enough. We need something more than that. But Abraham seems to feel very confident that just the Old Testament's enough to persuade someone to believe. And if they don't accept that, there's nothing else. There's nothing more effectual, nothing more powerful. Did some believe because of these resurrections, yes, some believed. But I also know that very soon after that, many fell away. Even the twelve ran and hid, leaving Christ alone. When we find what does this kind of belief, what is the belief that changes your attorney come from doesn't come from uh, this kind of uh, resurrection activity comes from the truth of having the truth of God disclosing our condition its penalty God's love and his provision and that truth can transform people's lives and deliver them for all eternity this is what Christ seeking to communicate 
attaching it to both the parable that we saw two weeks ago of the unjust steward and attaching it last week to the statement to the Pharisees with regard to the law. They had the truth. But because they loved the things of this world more than they loved the truth, they were lost. And that lost condition was going to be forever. It would be more permanent than death itself is that eternal state of torment. And so today is the day of salvation. And the power of the, of the Word of God must be heeded. Not externally, but internally. For God knows our hearts and is there the judgment is made. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. You knew our condition and You did everything and the only things that could be done to deliver us from it. Lord, we thank You for this warning. To consider anew where our trust lies. Lord, help us to trust in You. Not in the things of this world, not the things that we can see and touch. Lord, that we might look beyond and recognize that in this temporary world we have choices to make. Those around us must make those choices as well and must be fixed for eternity based upon them. Lord, help us to glorify Your name by trusting You that Your Word is sufficient to communicate Your love by Your Spirit's promised work to convict that men have every opportunity to come to You as Savior Lord. Lord, may it be upon our lips. May it be a priority. We begin to understand the seriousness of the issue at hand. It is more vital than life and death that men hear the Gospel. Lord, we think on those that understood that and did not love their lives to the death that others might hear of your truth. Lord, our prayer is that you might find us of such character. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.